0: Section 5 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording, All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The Grand Canal, Part 2. But from the same high windows we catch, without any stretching of the neck, a still more indispensable note in the picture, a famous pretender eating the bread of bitterness, This repast is served in the open air on a neat little terrace by attendants in livery. And there is no indiscretion in our seeing that the pretender dines. Ever since the table d'eut in Candide, Venice has been the refuge of monarchs in want of thrones. She wouldn't know herself without her roi en exil. The exile is agreeable and soothing. The gondola lets them down gently. Its movement is an anodyne, its silence a filter, and little by little it rocks all ambitions to sleep. The proscript has plenty of leisure to write his proclamations and even his memoirs, and I believe he has organs in which they are published, but the only noise he makes in the world is the harmless splash of his oars. He comes and goes along the Canalazzo, and he might be much worse employed. He is but one of the interesting objects it presents, however, and I by no means sure that he is the most striking. He has a rival, if not in the Iron Bridge, which, alas, is within our range, at least to take an immediate example in the Montecuccoli Palace. Far descended and weary, but beautiful in its crooked old age, with its lovely proportions, its delicate round arches, its carvings, and its discs of marble is the haunted Montecucoli. Those who have a kindness for Venetian gossip like to remember that it was once for a few months the property of Robert Browning, who, however, never lived in it, and who died in the splendid rezzonico the residence of his son, and a wonderful cosmopolite document which as it presents itself in an admirable position but a short way farther down the canal we can almost see, in spite of the curve from the window at which we stand. This great 17th century pile throwing itself upon the water with a peculiar florid assurance a certain upward toss of its cornice which gives it an air of the rearing seahorse decorates immensely and within as well as without the whole wide angle that it commands. There is a more formal greatness in the high square Gothic Foscari just below it, one of the noblest creations of the 15th century, a masterpiece of symmetry and majesty. Dedicated today to official uses, it is the property of the state. It looks conscious of the consideration it enjoys and is one of the few great houses within our range whose old age strikes us as robust and painless. It is visibly kept up. Perhaps it is kept up too much. Perhaps I am wrong in thinking so well of it. These doubts and fears course rapidly through my mind. I am easily their victim when it is a question of architecture, as they are apt to do today in Italy, almost anywhere in the presence of the beautiful, of the desecrated or the neglected. We feel at such moments as if the eye of Mr Ruskin were upon us. We grow nervous and lose our confidence. This makes me inevitably, in talking of Venice, seek a pusillanimous safety in the trivial and the obvious. I am on firm ground in rejoicing in the little garden, directly opposite our windows. It is another proof that they really show us everything, and in feeling that the gardens of Venice would deserve a page to themselves. They are infinitely more numerous than the arriving stranger can suppose. They nestle with a charm all their own in the complications of most back views. Some of them are exquisite. Many are large, and even the scrappiest have an artful understanding in the interests of colour with the waterways. That edge their foundations. Of the small canals in the hunt for amusement, they are the prettiest surprises of all. The tangle of plants and flowers crowds over the battered walls. The greenness makes an arrangement with the rosy, sordid brick. Of all the reflected and liquefied things in Venice, and the number of these is countless, I think the lapping water loves them most. They are numerous on the Canalazzo, but wherever they occur they give a brush to the picture and in particular, it is easy to guess, give a sweetness to the house. Then the elements are complete, the trio of air and water and of things that grow. Venice without them would be too much a matter of the tides and the stones. Even the little trellises of the traghetti count charmingly as reminders amid so much artifice of the woodland nature of man. The vine leaves, trained on horizontal poles, make a roof of checkered shade for the gondoliers and ferrymen who doze there, according to opportunity, or chatter or hail the approaching fair. There is no hum in Venice, so that their voices travel far. They enter your windows and mingle even with your dreams." I begged the reader to believe that if I had time to go into everything, I would go into the traghetti which have their manners and their morals, and which used to have their piety. This piety was always a Madonnina, the protectress of the passage, a quaint figure of the Virgin with the red spark of a lamp at her feet. The lamps appear for the most part to have gone out, and the images doubtless, have been sold for bric-a-brac. The ferrymen, for what I know, are converted to nihilism, a face consistent, happily, with a good stroke of business. One of the figures has been left, however, the Madonetta, which gives its name to a near the Rialto. But this sweet survivor is a carven stone inserted ages ago in the corner of an old palace, and doubtless, difficult of removal. The, the day will come when some marketable a relic will also be extracted from its socket and purchased by the devouring American. I leave that expression on second thoughts standing. But I repent of it when I remember that it is a devouring American, a lady long resident in Venice and whose kindnesses all Venetians, as well as her country people know, who has rekindled some of the extinguished tapers setting up especially the big brave gothic shrine of painted and gilded wood which on the top of its stout pala sheds its influence on the place of passage opposite the salute if i may not go into those of the palaces this devious discourse has left behind much less may i enter the great galleries of the academy which rears its blank walls surmounted by the lion of St. Mark, well within sight of the windows at which we are still lingering. This wondrous temple of Venetian art, for all it promises little from without, overhangs in a manner the Grand Canal. But if we were so much as to cross its threshold, we should soon wander beyond recall. It contains in some of the most magnificent halls the ceilings have all the glory with which the imagination of Venice alone could overarch a room, some of the noblest pictures in the world. And whether or not we go back to them on any particular occasion for another look, it is always a comfort to know that they are there, as the sense of them on the spot is a part of the furniture of the mind, the sense of them close at hand, behind every wall and under every cover, like the inevitable reverse of a medal of the side exposed to the air that reflects, intensifies, completes the scene. In other words, as it was the inevitable destiny of Venice to be painted and painted with passion, so the wide world of picture becomes, as we live here, and however much we go about our affairs, the constant habitation of our thoughts, The truth is, we are in it so uninterruptedly, at home and abroad, that there is scarcely a pressure upon us to seek it in one place more than in another. Choose your standpoint at random, and trust the picture to come to you. This is manifestly why I have not, I find myself conscious, said more about the features of the canalazzo which occupied the reach between the Salute and the position we have so obstinately taken up. It is still there before us, however, and the delightful little Palazzo Dario, intimately familiar to English and American travellers, picks itself out in the foreshortened brightness. The Dario is covered with the loveliest little marble plates and sculptured circles. It is made up of exquisite pieces, as if there had been only enough to make it small, so that it looks, in its extreme antiquity, a good deal like a house of cards that hold together by a tenure it would be fatal to touch. An old Venetian house dies hard indeed, and I should add that this delicate thing, with submission in every feature, continues to resist the contact of generations of lodgers, It is let out in floors. It used to be let as a whole, and in how many eager hands, for it is a great requisition, under how many fleeting dispensations have we not known and loved it. People are always writing in advance to secure it, as they are to secure the Jenkins' gondolier. And as the gondola passes, we see strange faces at the window, though it's ten to one we recognise them and the millionth artist coming forth with his traps at the watergate. The poor little patient Dario is one of the most flourishing booths at the fair. The faces in the window look out at the great Sansovino, the splendid pile that is now occupied by the prefect. I feel decidedly that I don't object as I ought to the palaces of the 16th and 17th centuries, their pretensions impose upon me, and the imagination peoples them more freely than it can people the interiors of the prime. Was not, moreover, this masterpiece of Sansovino once occupied by the Venetian post office, and thereby intimately connected with an ineffaceable first impression of the author of these remarks? He had arrived wondering, palpitating 23 years ago after nightfall, and the first thing on the morrow had repaired to the post office for his letters. They had been waiting a long time and were full of delayed interest, and he returned with them to the gondola and floated slowly down the canal. The mixture, the rapture, the wonderful temple of the post restante, the beautiful strangeness, all humanised by good news, the memory of this abides with him still, so that it always proceeds from the splendid waterfront I speak of, a certain secret appeal, something that seems to have been uttered first in the sonorous chambers of youth. Of course, this association falls to the ground, or rather splashes into the water if I am the victim of a confusion. Was the edifice in question 23 years ago at the post office? which has occupied since, for many a day, very much humbler quarters. I'm afraid to take the proper steps for finding out, lest I should learn that during these years I have misdirected my emotion. A better reason for the sentiment, at any rate, is that such a great house has surely, in the high beauty of its tears, a refinement of its own. They make one think of Colosseums and aqueducts and bridges, and they constitute doubtless in Venice the most pardonable specimen of the imitative. I have even a timid kindness for the huge Pesaro far down the canal, whose main reproach, more even than the coarseness of its forms, is its swaggering size, its want of consideration for the general picture, which the earlier examples so reverently respect the Pesero is as far out of the frame as a modern hotel, and the Coronado close to it oversteps almost equally the modesty of art. One more thing they and their kindred do, I must add, for which unfortunately we can patronise them less, they make even the most elaborate material civilization of the present day seem woefully shrunken and bourgeois, for they simply, I allude to the biggest palaces, can't be lived in, as they were intended to be. The modern tenant may take in all the magazines, but he bends not to the bow of Achilles. He occupies the place, but he doesn't fill it. And he has guests from the neighbouring inns with ulsters and by We are far at the Pesaro, by the way, from our attaching window, and we take advantage of it to go in a rather melancholy mood. To the end. The long straight vista from the Foscari to the Rialto, the great middle stretch of the canal, contains, as the phrase is, a hundred objects of interest, but it contains most the bright oddity of its general deluge air. In all these centuries, it has never got over its resemblance to a flooded city. For some reason or other it is the only part of Venice in which the houses look as if the waters had overtaken them. Everywhere else they reckon with them have chosen them. Here alone the lapping seaways seems to confess itself an accident. There are persons who hold this long, gay, shabby, spotty perspective in which, with its immense field of confused reflection, the houses have infinite variety the dullest expanse in Venice. It was not dull we imagine for Lord Byron, who lived in the midmost of the three Mocenigo palaces, where the writing table is still shown at which he gave the rein to his passions. For other observers, it is sufficiently enlivened by so delightful a creation as the Palazzo Loredan, once a masterpiece and, at present, the Municipio, not to speak of a variety of other immemorial bits whose beauty still has a degree of freshness. Some of the most touching relics of early Venice are here, for it was here she precariously clustered, peeping out of a submersion more pitiless than the sea. As we approach the Rialto, indeed, the picture falls off, and a comparative commonness suffuses it. There is a wide, paved walk, on either side of the canal, on which the waterman, and who in Venice is not a waterman, is prone to seek repose. I speak of the summer days. It is the summer Venice that is the visible Venice. The big tarry barges are drawn up at the fondamenta, and the bare-legged boatmen in faded blue cotton lie asleep on the hot stones. If there were no colour anywhere else, there would be enough in their tanned personalities. Half the low doorways open into the warm interior of waterside drinking shops, and here and there on the quay, beneath the bush that overhangs the door, there are rickety tables and chairs. Where in Venice is there not the amusement of character and of detail? The tone in this part is very vivid and it is largely that of the brown plebeian faces looking out of the patchy, miscellaneous houses. The faces of fat, undressed women, and of other simple folk, who are not aware that they enjoy from balconies once doubtless patrician, a view the knowing ones of the earth come thousands of miles to envy them. The effect is enhanced by the tattered clothes hung to dry in the windows, by the sun-faded rags that flutter from the polished balustrades. These are ivory smooth with time, and the whole scene profits by the general law that renders decadence and ruin in Venice more brilliant than any prosperity. Decay is in this extraordinary place golden in tint, and misery couleur de rose. The gondolas of the correct people are unmitigated sable, but the poor market boats from the islands are kaleidoscopic. The bridge of the Rialto is a name to conjure with, but honestly speaking, it is scarcely the gem of the composition. There are, of course, two ways of taking it, from the water or from the upper passage, where its small shops and booths abound in Venetian character but it mainly counts as a feature of the canal when seen from the gondola, or even from the awful Vaporetto. The great curve of its single arch is much to be commended, especially when, coming from the direction of the railway station, you see it frame, with its sharp compass line, the perfect picture, the reach of the canal on the other side. But the backs of the little shops make from the water a graceless collective hump, and the inside view is the diverting one. The big arch of the bridge, like the arches of all the bridges, is the waterman's friend in wet weather. The gondolas, when it rains, huddle beside the peopled barges, and the young ladies from the hotels, vaguely fidgeting, complain of the communication of insect life. Here, indeed, is a little of everything, and the jewellers of this celebrated precinct they have their immemorial row, make almost as fine a show as the is. It is a universal market, and a fine place to study Venetian types. The produce of the islands is discharged there, and the fishmongers announce their presence. All one's senses indeed are vigorously attacked. The whole place is violently hot and bright, all odorous and noisy the churning of the screw of the paparetto mingles with the other sounds. Not indeed that this offensive note is confined to one part of the canal, but just here. The little piers of the resented steamer are particularly near together, and it seems somehow to be always kicking up the water. As we go further down, we see it stopping exactly beneath the glorious windows of the Cardoro, It has chosen its position well and who shall gainsay it for having put itself under the protection of the most romantic facade in europe the companionship of these objects is a symbol it expresses supremely the present and the future of venice perfect in its prime was the marble cardoro with the noble recesses of its loggiae but even then it probably never met a want like the successful Vaporetto. If, however, we are not to go into the Museo Civico, the old Museo Correa, which rears its steering renovated front far down on the left near the station, so also we must keep out of the great vexed question of steam on the canalazzo. Just as a while since we prudently kept out of the Academia, These are expensive and complicated excursions. It is obvious that if the Vaporetti have contributed to the ruin of the Gondoliers, already hard-pressed by fate, and to that of the palaces, whose foundations their waves undermine, and that if they have robbed the Grand Canal of the supreme distinction of its tranquillity, so on the other hand they have placed rapid transit, in the New York phrase, in everybody's reach, and enabled everybody, save indeed those who wouldn't for the world, to rush about Venice as furiously as people rush about New York. The suitability of this consummation needn't be pointed out. Even we ourselves, in the irresistible contagion, are going so fast now that we have only time to note in how clever and costly a fashion the Museo Civico, the old fondaco dei turci has been reconstructed and restored it is a glare of white marble without and a series of showy majestic halls within where a thousand curious mementos and relics of old venice are gathered and classified of its miscellaneous treasures i fear i may perhaps frivolously prefer the series of its remarkable living longies an illustration of manners more copious than the celebrated Carpaccio, the two ladies with their little animals and their long sticks. Wonderful indeed are the museums of Italy, where the renovations in the Belle Ordinance speak of funds apparently unlimited, in spite of the fact that the numerous custodians frankly look starved. What is the pecuniary source of all this civic magnificence? it is shown in a hundred other ways, and how do the Italian cities manage to acquit themselves of expenses that will be formidable even to communities richer and, doubtless, less aesthetic? Who pays the bills for the expressive statues alone? The general exuberance of sculpture with which every piazzetta of almost every village is patriotically decorated. Let us not seek an answer to the puzzling question but observe instead that we are passing the mouth of the populous Canareggio, next widest of the waterways, where the race of Shylock abides, and at the corner of which the big colourless church of San Jeremia stands gracefully enough on guard. The Canareggio, with its wide lateral footways and humped-back bridges, makes on the feast of St John an admirable noisy, tawdry theatre for one of the prettiest and the most infantile of the Venetian processions. The rest of the course is a reduced magnificence in spite of interesting bits of the battered pomp of the Pesaro and of the Coronaro, of the recurrent memories of royalty and exile which cluster round the Palazzo Vendramin Careggi, once the residence of the Comte de Chambord, and still that of his half-brother, in spite two of the big Papadopoli gardens opposite the station that largest just private grounds in Venice, but of which Venice in general mainly gets the benefit in the usual form of irrepressible greenery climbing over the walls and nodding at the water. The Rococo Church of the Scudzi is here, all marble and malachite in a cold, hard glitter and a costly, curly ugliness, and here, too, opposite, on the top of its high steps, is San Simeone Profeta. I won't say immortalized, but unblushingly misrepresented by the perfidious Canaletto. I shall not stay to unravel the mystery of this prosaic painter's malpractices. He falsified without fancy. And as he apparently transposed at will the objects he reproduced, one is never sure of the particular view that may have constituted his subject. It would look exactly like such and such a place if almost everything were not different. San Simeone Profeto appears to hang there upon the wall, but it is on the wrong side of the canal, and the other elements quite fail to correspond. One's confusion is the greater because one doesn't know that everything may not really have changed, even beyond all probability, though it is only in America that churches cross the street or the river. And the mixture of the recognisable and the different makes the ambiguity maddening, all the more as the painter is almost as attaching as he is bad. Thanks, at any rate, to the white church, domed and porticoed on the top of its steps, the traveller emerging for the first time upon the terrace of the railway station seems to have a canaletto before him. He speedily discovers indeed, even in the presence of this scene of the final accents of the canalanzo, there is a charm in the old pink warehouses on the hot fondamento that he has something much better. He looks up and down at the gathered gondolas. He has his surprise after all, his little first venetian thrill and as the terrace of the station ushers in these things we shall say no harm of it though it is not lovely it is the beginning of his experience but it is the end of the grand canal 1892 end of section 5